0: Hello, welcome to Cloud Spotting. Um, back again, myself and Sai. We're here to uh, talk about technology um, from the perspective of a, of a couple of solution architects looking at the industry. Um, so, Sai, how have you been since uh, since we last caught up last month?
1: Good. A little bit of hay fever, but then winter came in between, so it was great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, snow in April and May. It was
1: good. Exactly. Uh, yeah, a little a few customer visits. We had some uh, interesting uh, topics of discussion since the last pod- last podcast. I think it's been good. How about you, Alex?
0: Yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting month. Um, I think uh, the thing that I've been most interested in is something that was a bit new to me. Has been uh, learning a bit about Alibaba Cloud. So, That's spent true. a day with uh, with a trainer doing some Alibaba training, and uh, yeah, it was it was quite fascinating actually to see. Uh, how they've approached things, both similarly and in different ways to uh, absolutely to some of the other cloud vendors,
1: and 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 the confusion of acronyms all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. Yeah. Some of them are quite similar to uh, one or two other clubs. That's true. Um, <laughs> uh, so we the, the the main focus for the episode today is going to be around developers. So we figured right. we have uh, you know we have an audience who are predominantly IT professionals, architects, engineers, um, but some of the people that we're looking to enable as IT professionals are, the development community. And so we thought we would bring in a special guest today who is an architect now, but comes from that development background. So um, we have Paul Fryer, who's uh, one of our colleagues. Paul, do you want to give us a wee introduction to yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And I'm, I'm surprised that you said special guest as opposed to your <laughs> usual introduction to me. Um, so a little bit about myself is um, I've had a very sort of interesting background within computing. I don't want to give too much away about my age, but <laughs> I started uh, at a very young age with IT programming on the Acorn Electron. And in fact, Ooh, I've got a wow. dragon in the loft as well. So at the age of seven, I actually asked my parents for programming lessons. Um, So whilst playing the piano and other bits, I also started to program on the BBC B. Oh, cool. Um, So that was kind of my sort of early age introduction to computing. And I continued that. Um, Once I finished university, I got a job at a local charity. The charity was actually for uh, the UK Fire and Rescue Service. And the day that I started, the entire IT team quit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, this was no, no reflection on you obviously yeah pretty much um and that basically left me and a colleague of mine in charge of all of the internet between the uk fire and rescue services wow. the, the fire and rescue services document management systems as well as all of the uh, email services for about a third of the uk FRS. So I had a rapid introduction into becoming a system administrator as well <laughs> yes, um, fantastic. and learned how to build Active Directory domains, exchange services, um, and then as we stabilized that platform, we went back to being programmers because we wrote in the early 2000s one of the first content management systems for them. So we started that off writing in PHP, because I've always had an interest in open source, because being that programmer, I've always wanted to see the code and go that bit further. Mm-hmm. Um, and by being a programmer, I've always wanted to be better at what I did. So I always went, well, how do I write better PHP code? So I learned about how Apache works so that I could write better code. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to learn how Apache interacted with the file systems and the kernels. So Because if I knew that, I could make Apache better, which meant I could write better code. And ultimately just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper to make myself a better developer. Um, After sort of five, six years of working within the charity, I decided that I wanted to go a lot more um, sort of private sector and commercial things. So I ended up working for a content management provider based in Leicester, um, running a team of developers, testers, system administrators, and support teams. And if you kind of put all of those together, you very quickly get up with sort of a DevOps agile mentality. Mm -hmm. So I took that as an opportunity to go through my certified scrum master, help get the team to go through an agile transformation um, and really try to help transform the business as well. So we try to inject things like and we successfully transformed the business with ISO 27001 compliance. We became, we used PCI as a framework. We had no need to do it, but we met every one of those and we got
0: like a best practice model to make sure that what you were developing was going to be secure, stable.
2: Absolutely. And because of all that great work we did, um, the business also won several of the government's exemplar uh, projects. Mm -hmm. So we helped with several of the digital transformations. Um, So I then started to do work with people like uh, Stereo at the time. So we did one of the original DirectGov implementations, their forums. Um, before maybe One of on. the ones that worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then worked with people like the Ministry of Justice as well. So oh, we cool. do cool. quite a lot of central government and security framework things there.
0: And then what made you make the jump from from doing the development side and understanding the infrastructure to actually becoming somebody who designs infrastructure mm-hmm. and looking at it from the opposite side?
2: Yeah. So some of the subjects we've got later on we'll touch on, but... Um, Effectively, once you take a business through a transformation, you get it going as far as you possibly can. You put all of the good practices in, all of the processes in, and effectively, the business has gone as far as technology allows you to transform them. Mm -hmm. And it's just then about them writing new functions and functionality. Then there wasn't a lot more for me to go and fix. Mm -hmm. And what I really enjoy is helping fix people's problems. So if I could take that 10 to 15 years worth of experience and then help other people accelerate their transformation, then that was a really, really interesting thing for me. Mm -hmm. So when I joined Rackspace, I joined as one of the early sort of DevOps specialists as well. So I I used to run a lot of the DevOps workshops um, and talk to customers a lot about their development practices and procedures because... Small tweaks there could make big changes in infrastructure, which would have resulted True. in significant improvements in their output. Yeah, for sure.
0: I, I actually had I have one customer um, who had a, a, let's call it a, a mobile application, hmm. um, which used to stream very, very small quantities of data. Um, but just something as simple as changing the name of a field changed the quantity of that data by... Abs- like I'm talking about like 50, 60 percent of their bandwidth went just yeah. by changing the name of a field within the application. Yeah, so yeah. tiny development changes can have huge impacts on Absolutely. infrastructure.
2: And, and with the way the world's going as well, I have a significant passion around application performance mm. and interactions because if I can say if I can make an application 10 percent quicker with pay-as-you-go infrastructure, that's potentially 10 percent less cost mm-hmm. as well. Yep. But also. Absolutely. If that means, as a website, it runs faster, you get more transactions, more conversions, you're going to make more money, yep. which is better for the customer, and it's costing them less. So yep. there, it's a win-win for them. Totally. And then <clears throat>
1: thinking about the way the world is going, you've got infrastructure as code now, mm-hmm. which means you're effectively... You're not less restricted to coding for applications as a developer. Yeah. You're now looking to code infrastructure, yeah. which makes a whole lot of difference in how you deploy stuff.
2: Mm. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know what they don't know. So that's exactly. where Rackspace, for me, was a great thing. So that transformation allowed me to take all of that experience and talk to small, upstart-type companies, fintechs, whatever. You know, They're on a rapid learning curve, mm. but if we can accelerate that learning curve, then that's even better. And that's, mm. that's exciting for me.
1: Perfect. And that's a good point actually. Uh, we're talking about learning curve, we talk about transformation. Paul, in your experience with the dev approach to now, we're talking about clouds, we're talking mm. about AWS and Azure, and, and there's a lot of dev influence into the clouds. Tell me tell me what do you think are the main reasons that the dev should go in the cloud? I know we know when we talk about cloud, we don't we talk about dev, we all think, oh, hey, the cloud is elastic. We can turn off stuff at any time we want. that can't be the only reason.
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question. And there's lots and lots of reasons. One of the biggest advantages for me is, coming from the operations point of view, is back in the day, um, (laughs) people used to develop on like a local server, on a local instance or a virtual machine. And they'd have this tiny little package and they'd build it up. And we've all seen the memes of, it worked in dev, (laughs) the house is burning down. And because more often than not, it's because the development environment is not the same in any way, shape, or form as production or UAT. So quite often, I used to work with companies that they'd use a local machine or a local single instance for everything. Mm -hmm. And then the first time it went to the infrastructure pattern that it was going to be would be like pre-production. And
0: more often than not, it would fail. Simply splitting the different elements of the application on different hosts Absolutely. is enough to break it. And, yeah. I, and
2: I, I still see a lot of where, oh, yeah, well, we've hard-coded the local IP in here. And you oh, don't fantastic. find out about it until you've got it in pre-production. But it's too late to fix it then. Yep. So we talk a lot about shifting problems left. And That's what a good that, point, yeah. Yeah. Is If you can make your platform look the same as production you can catch problems significantly earlier in the cycle. Mm-hmm. If you can catch them earlier in the cycle, it's going to cost you less to fix it yep. because you don't have to go back through things. So in terms of being able to go, um, I can make this pattern look exactly the same as production means I can test using exactly the same services, exactly the same, load balancing tools, exactly the same scalabilities, etc. You may choose to tune the size of the boxes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but at least you've got all the boxes in the right place. Yeah, it's
0: logically identical, if not at the same scale.
2: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that has significant um, economic benefits when you look at total cost of development. Um, And if you look at total cost of development, which includes your testing cycles, the time to test, which costs you a lot of money in terms of, uh, people's time and in terms of unit tests and other mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. significantly reduced yep. if you can reduce that time to test time to cycle and reduce your uh, problem cycle it means your feature to production time is less costs you less and if that feature is going to develop you money or improve your business in whatever way yep. then ultimately you're just going to make more money
0: yeah so it's kind of concept to cash is, is much faster exactly. by shortening that entire cycle so,
2: so from that point of view, it's really great. Right. From developers' point of views, um, a lot of people are moving away from having to have big desktops and mm. things, right? <laughs> you know, people want to work from home. They want to work from coffee shops and all these things. The ability to no longer have to worry where your test environment is mm. means that you can you can work on a Surface or yep. an iPad because all you're doing if you're doing it, is writing code and pushing it. Yep then the burden on your local infrastructure is significantly reduced. So cool. you have huge advantages in terms of like staff engagement because they're no longer sat there at a PC that's tucked under the desk running on a local virtual machine.
0: Probably cooking their
2: legs as well. Exactly. So it's the kind of developer yeah, rigs you used to get in the day, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So in terms of like staff <laughs> engagement, it means you can hire better people, you can keep them more engaged, you can do other things. So that's great as well. Um, and the final sort of thing for myself is The ability for staff to completely tear down an environment and deploy from scratch at any point in time or to be able to deploy from a specific version or release. So if they find there's a bug that has made it to production but they've never found it, they can spin up a platform and deploy the code as it was when that release was done. Perfect, yeah. Yeah. So if you look again at sort of that that old-school environment, people often used to have VMs with the development UAT in. Mm -hmm. And if you needed to roll it back for a support purpose, it was often a nightmare. So tearing it down, trying to get a copy. And this is then where you often ended up with people copying data from production back into UAT because they needed it to look like the, exactly, <laughs> exactly the
0: same so that they could then try and figure it out and find Absolutely, it. It's the reverse of that meme, isn't it? It's like worked in production now yeah. it's Dev's problem. No <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. And,
2: and that from a business point of view has a huge burden because chances are your internal systems don't have the same tools and rigor around mm. that production environment.
0: For sure.
2: And if you're up production environment just think about GDPR now, right? If if you took a production system copied it to a local dev's vm it's probably got half a million people's email addresses personal details mm-hmm. or you know whatever it is in it it's totally and he's sitting in a coffee like shop with it and they're sitting in a coffee <laughs> shop with access to it and you're yeah. like Ugh. so exactly. even from a shoulder surfing point of view that's a nightmare mm-hmm. so yeah it's, it's
0: interesting actually that you mentioned that so from an infrastructure point of view the closer that we get towards that kind of a model where we can deploy into our environments on demand as well, gives us so much more flexibility from things like disaster recovery standpoint. Mm. A really common model that I talk with customers about is on that kind of journey to a cloud-native-style application is once they've gotten there, all you really care about in disaster recovery is your data. So as long as your primary data source, your persistent Mm -hmm. data sources are replicated to say another cloud region or whatever... Then actually, the loss of your production application servers and services is not a big deal because you can then spin up on demand. As long as you've got that, you know, spinning up reasonably quickly, you can spin that up on demand in another region and then just mount it to the existing data, and then you've got a fully working application. You don't have all of those nightmares that we've had with more traditional methods of, you know, full-on VM replication exactly. between sites and stuff like that, and having to orchestrate it and then re-IP at the other side yeah. and all these other things. You get past all of that by just rebuilding the application and mounting your data. So. I- there's, a, there's an infrastructure benefit there as well as the the developer benefit.
1: Indeed, and with the cloud, and a lot of customers now moving towards PaaS-type products in the cloud makes that even more quicker because mm-hmm. you don't have to deploy the infrastructure from scratch again. Yeah,
0: for sure. And then once you start containerizing things on top. <laughs>
1: and the keywords coming in.
0: <laughs> we're not going to talk about Kubernetes today, no, are we? Today. Maybe we will. We'll see. So the next thing we wanted to talk about, so you touched on it a little bit there. So we talked about um, all of this, well, GDPR. We've, I think, we've talked, we've talked GDPR that, yeah. to quite some extent, yeah. uh, but um, security and and development. So, I mean, how do you see the 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 influence of security around the development side of things, and what's the developer view on security?
1: <coughs> Is um, there a view on security?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm just writing code, aren't I? <laughs> yes,
2: um, Yes, developers <laughs> and security. Hey. <laughs>
0: I can almost hear people like crashing their cars off the road right now, like shaking fists in the air.
2: Um, And, and it's, it's an interesting point because, you, again, you don't know what you don't know. So mm. if you're taught or you have business practices to code in a certain way, you tend to keep going that way. And to go back over legacy code is impossible in reality, you know. Mm-hmm you trying to write unit tests for a developed application when it's already developed. You mm-hmm. know, at best, you'll get a couple of percent coverage. In reality, what we're looking at is because of the way the cloud is going and because of the way the, it, things can be scaled, the old-fashioned security models no longer work. Um, we used to often talk about hardened shell. So if you talk about how do you harden the edge of the environment, if you think about an office... If you put a security person on the front door and, and locks on the doors and you stop people getting in, mm-hmm. then you don't have to worry about what's inside. An old-fashioned infrastructure was exactly like yep. that. Let's put a firewall at the edge yep. and if nobody else can come in or they can only come
0: in and ask these certain questions,
2: everything's happy, right?
0: True. Yeah, like the, like the old dime bar ads. Crunchy on the outside, smooth in the middle. Exactly.
2: <laughs> um, and as security security threats have become more um, prevalent in the world and more lucrative, and let's face it, there's, there's whole criminal organizations out there about that, is there will always be a way to break in. True. There will always be a new zero day. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you think you write the most beautiful code, Spectre will come along and give you a hardware problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so There's always going to be something else that comes True. along. So we have to try to think of security as no longer as just how do I make sure only what I want to come in comes in and only what goes out is what I want to go out, but also what's going on inside the environment and inside the platform? Mm. So we often talk about things like the security model needs to change to something like a pervasive, hierarchical, and scalable security set. Now that is... It's a, quite a mouthful. It is. An <laughs> it is. Is there an acronym? Is there an acronym? Uh, pass. <laughs> right let's get on with that <coughs> um and effectively what that means is if we look at old school ddos attacks it used to just be volumetric think about the moriah mm. it was basically cctv cameras could send a udp packet that was relatively large but that's about all it could compute mm. within the space of a year internet of things has gone from a cctv camera that can only just about send an 800 byte packet yep. to my nest camera at home which can detect a person a voice and everything else mm-hmm. and attacks have moved from just being volumetric as a noise to even using internet of things to be layer 7 attacks yeah yep um there was one reported last week that was 600 gigabit at layer 7 mm. now that wow. is unheard of Six months ago. Mm-hmm. True. So the way attacks are evolving is they're, they're going straight for the application. Because mm-hmm. Internet of Things and everything else has just become more prevalent. So when we talk about the security model needs to be pervasive, hierarchical, and scalable, is the scalable part is if your application can scale in size and whatever else, the old-fashioned thing of I just need to get a bigger firewall or a bigger WAF no longer works, you need to push yeah. that out to be cloud-scale. And it needs to be able to scale automatically. Because if even if we went back two years ago, three years ago, people used to talk about scale sets, they would build out a new VM, they'd patch it, they'd install the application, and then they'd add it to load yeah, balance. That doesn't work because in those few minutes, whilst it's coming online, it's probably been hacked. Yep. yep. So how do we make that automatically yeah, scalable exactly. as well? And if we're talking about attacks now at the application level. If you went back to that model of, I've now got a DMZ and only my DMZ can talk to my private layer, but chances are it's your DMZ at your application can talk to your private layer. And people talk a lot about things like transparent data encryption. Once you've got access to the application, the the point of transparent data encryption being transparent by its nature means that you've got the keys to the kingdom. It may as well not be there. So we often talk about a pervasive security. And what that often means is, if somebody gains access to them, they'll spread widely throughout the area in a very, very short period of time. Mm-hmm. So you need to have the ability to detect things within the application. So just because my application makes a query to my database and queries these columns, argument's sake to pull back a credit card detail, mm-hmm. sh- should it only pull back one or a thousand? Mm-hmm. And How do you have that ability to measure that the types of queries that have been asked for are the types of answers that have been given back as well?
0: So so skills can, for developers need to be improved really from the day dot absolutely. where they're in university learning their learning their trade yeah. craft to actually start to build in these kinds of functions mm-hmm. and, and, the, and these kind of things.
1: Yeah, this takes well. the whole de- developing to a certain level because you're, you're now talking about the application thinking of out of the
2: box. Yeah, you have to design for security. Exactly. You have to code for security in mind. And this is one of the bigger changes that we're looking at. When things are starting to move more towards micro-container services or, mm-hmm. you know, and no, that's an acronym of multiple I know, things, I know. amazing. Because it's <laughs> micro-container services. But that's effectively what's happening is people are breaking their application down into micro-services and mm-hmm. then they're containerizing individual parts of that. Yep. And that's going even further. Is we start to talk about separation of responsibilities. So do you have a different dev team that works at different parts? You may move people around. But by having completely different teams develop completely different components, this is what the the airline industry does, so Mm -hmm. that the web tier talks to a completely different application written by completely different people with different standards and techniques and culture Mm -hmm. to query the database. So chances are bugs and et cetera don't continue through the stack because mm-hmm. it's not written. Usually. It's kind of like
1: checkpoints in every level.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and it may be that you have a common code base or framework that you use for some of those things, mm-hmm. um, but more often than not, people are now starting to go, well, my web tier might be PHP, but my middleware might be Node.js or vice. Neo. Mm-hmm. So people are starting to choose the right coding language for the right service that they're they're using, which helps remove some of those burdens. Right,
1: wow. That, that, that's a good point because you talk about checkpoints you talk about the burdens I'm, I can't I'm, I'm seeing that the infrastructure is starting to scale out using a lot more components coming into play now
2: absolutely um, and the old sort of fashion way of thinking of well let me just put a uh, an IDS scanning in between those tiers huh. just just does not work yeah. if you look at things like the Google platform where yep. a service can be anywhere in the world you can't have that routing back through a single scanning point exactly yes. Because if you look at like... Cloud uh, on a stick, would that be? Basically, Ooh. yeah, right. <laughs> and it, it completely negates the value of of auto-scalable services. Cool. So we have to start to look at how can we inject security, not only as development practices and procedures, but into those services, baked into them before they can even go out to production. Mm-hmm. And this is where I talk to a lot of people about things like... Okay, so if I'm now going to hack your application, you might have written the most beautiful application in the world and it's going to be impossible for me to hack, but chances are I'll tailgate somebody into your office, sit down next to them, shoulder surf them, and hard code something into their CI CD pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I used to do at my old business, was actually inject things into the code pipeline to see if the CI CD scanning tools. Oh, okay. Would pull we
1: have out. a live chaos monkey, people. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: <laughs> Um, so it's things like static code analysis um, and having uh, different testers. And one of the, f- the first things I forced my teams to do was the only people that could commit to Trunk was my testers. Right. Right. So engine- you took that away oh, from the engineering yeah. team mm-hmm. because actually it's not the engineer that signs off that this code is secure and works. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the developer. The team's yeah. at the side.
0: Yeah. A complete change in mindset from the way that we... we- how we consider something to be appropriate and ready for production. Absolutely. And then it's having teams like your operations teams saying,
2: okay, we're going to bake a container, but inside this container, we now need to have these certain tools. So mm-hmm. it might be things like CrowdStrike or whatever it is. So it's being able to bake those into the container so it's got visibility inside the container, which right now the vast majority of people have got. I know what's going in and I know what's coming out, maybe, maybe. because yeah. it's encrypted. But what goes mm-hmm. on inside it? Not a clue. And that's, that's a fin-
1: that's a fantastic point because uh, that also leads very nicely in to having compliance from scratch. Yeah. Because if you're if you're doing if you're doing PCI level stuff, then you want to know what's running in there and you want to make sure it's secure. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, and back to the very earlier point of it. It worked in dev. It didn't work in production, and it's because more often than not, people only used to have the security wrap when it went to production. Mm-hmm. So. I make a post request in test, it works. I make a post request in production, it doesn't because all of these fields now look like a SQL injection. Mm-hmm. And that was a nightmare to debug in the past. So how do we now know that that post, when it goes straight to a container, is actually got what it is yep. mm-hmm. inside it? Um, so that that's a complete change of thing.
0: Is it, I mean, even, even with customers who, let's say... Um, are looking to become more DevOps, right? They want to adopt DevOps methodologies and processes and things. But to get to a true DevOps culture is a massive change to an organization. You know, even something as simple as having a group where the developers are actually the people who are doing the support of that code out of hours, for example, Mm. something as simple as that. Um, But what you're describing means that even in organizations that haven't made it all the way to that end state in DevOps they're going to have to have their IT and their infrastructure teams working much, much closer with the developers to make sure that whatever the developers are creating actually meets those end security requirements, compliance requirements, regulatory, et cetera, um, or even just basic administration. Because once you as you said, once you move to that container infrastructure, today the container ecosystem, is as awesome as it is, and everybody's jumping on board with it, it's still not mature enough that, the typical IT admin has the level of visibility, access, mm. et cetera, that they've historically been used to. So there's a real jump there in comfort mm. levels that they yeah. have to get into. And so by working closer with their developers, they can start to introduce at least some more visibility, even down to things like simple stuff like logging. You know, I mean, yep. once you go to a microservices architecture and you might have containers that live for minutes or hours, okay, so how do you trace when there's a problem and that machine's been deleted yesterday? Um, you know, yeah. you need the ability to centrally log and give access both to, from a development and an application perspective, but also from the infrastructure side, so they can start to look into that.
1: Absolutely, and I, I guess as you scale up, you need some automation on those logs as well to catch things that, mm-hmm. that you may not be able to catch as a physically looking in front of this computer.
0: Mm-hmm. So the computer. So the interesting as well that you mentioned around, you know, moving. I guess it's sh- the shifting attitudes around production versus non-production. So um, I think historically uh, what I've seen with probably the, the majority of organizations I've worked with over the past, uh, again, like yourself, I won't say how many years in the architecture <laughs> and consulting space. Two hundred. A while, right? <laughs> um is that the the level of attention that is paid to the non-production environments is significantly mm-hmm. less? There's, yeah. they, they may be structurally and infrastructurally smaller, mm-hmm. but they may also not necessarily have the same levels of security applied to them. So, you know, what, I, I guess what what kind of considerations should we have around um, you know production versus non-production, even beyond the actual development of the code? Um, and where do we see, for example, risks coming into that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's an awful lot of questions in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a container of questions. Yeah. Cluster questioning. Yeah, it's a cluster question. Uh, let's see which one I'll pick first. Um, yeah, it's a great one. And this is where I see the traditional sysad role evolving, because if the code is designed as infrastructure, um, people are using, you know, formation templates or ARM templates, whatever it is they want to do, is the security should be baked into the template as well. And I see the Mm -hmm. sysads, generally, they've moved from being hands-on keyboards, editing a config file, to probably writing a a puppet script or a a playbook. But they're probably the guys that are now writing the CloudFormation templates. Mm -hmm. And they need to work with the development team so that they get the right changes at the right place with the right model. And if the development team can only deploy their application using that CloudFormation template, then chances are the people that are now maintaining that subscription mm-hmm. that account are also the people that are in charge of the security mm-hmm. um, and they're probably your old sysads so they understand the complexity mm-hmm. so from solving the old-fashioned of my development environment is in a cupboard inside my office and mm-hmm. somebody could break in and steal my whole computer to actually now let's have that in the cloud lock that down using iam rules but use the ability to access it over the cloud using uh like uh, authentication proxies or right. something else, just to mm-hmm. simplify the access to it, has actually meant that the risk on IP theft has significantly reduced. Mm. So security in the cloud has generally got a lot better from that mm-hmm. point of view.
0: Where You're I see it, the cloud is more secure than that, like that old tower that sat in the corner of the office for the past. 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, what we're seeing a
2: lot now is, let's take that tower that sat in the corner of the office for ten years. <laughs> is it's probably got numerous copies of production data on it. Mm -hmm. True. Whereas if we can deploy that into the cloud with the same security models and governance, even if somebody does, God forbid, copy live production data, it's probably got exactly the same controls and governance around it. And when it's finished, it's destroyed in a secure, reliable fashion that Mm -hmm. matches exactly the same model as your production. Now, I'm not encouraging anyone ever to copy data from production to non-production systems, <laughs> mm-hmm. but because that's the only place you can deploy it, it's probably got the same governance and controls right. that your production systems have anyway. So that's a lot better. It doesn't necessarily mean that those individuals have the right to access it and you've probably got the problems there. <laughs>
1: uh, or you've got multiple problems there. Yeah,
2: but but that ha- in itself, I feel, has, has had a significant improvement on uh, people's data risks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you're 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 protecting against accidental as well as deliberate kind of uh, leakage of data from production. Yeah. The, the other thing I guess that cloud also does is that most of the large cloud vendors provide some form of ETL as a service, mm-hmm. um, which can be really beneficial when you're um, potentially pulling in some of that production data and you want to then go on and anonymize that, for example, and then push that to non-production. Yeah. So you can uh, automate that end to You can do And I... I... <laughs> I know, I see two sides of
2: this because my strong belief is if you're writing an application and your application has name and address fields in it, mm. when you write that, you should write a way to be able to inject okay. a a name and an address. Mm-hmm. And you may choose that to be um, you know, any random length, and you can write that function to, choose, to, to inject as many or as few records as you choose. And you might tune that during your uh, load testing phases. Mm-hmm. Because how else have you tested your code in the first place? True. Mm-hmm. <laughs> True. Uh, and I often talk to people about things like having a standard data set to be able to inject from. So something that contains all of the edge case fields. So does, do you have an address that just could be for a German address that might have an umlaut in it and you've never tested with that yeah. character mm. set or do people have I live at flat A and they bracket the flat yeah. True. but your address doesn't cope with a bracket in it what's your way of sanitizing and, and dealing with those mm. mm-hmm um, and the only way to truly build that complete test case is to write the test case when you create the functions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so what we're go. saying is,
0: it's the developers that need to worry about. It. We as infrastructure don't.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I would always work with the developers to say, and this is what I believe is your edge case set. Yeah. And then, if in the future you get another problem, you update that test set to include those regression tests. That's mm-hmm. Yep. Because um, otherwise, you will get a future regressions. Mm-hmm. What that does then is it means that you have a complete separation of responsibility between development and production. And I would consider development all the way up to if you do dev, test, UAT, SIT testing, whatever it is you want to do, load testing, up to the point of a pre-production environment. Mm. And I'd say pre-production is a complete separation between your production deployment teams and your non-production. You might automate that through Jenkins, or whatever tool you choose. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm old enough to remember what Jenkins used to be called.
0: Uh, <laughs> what did these used to be called? Hudson. Hudson. Yeah? Hudson. Ah. Yeah. Maybe I'm not as old as I thought. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, you flatter yourself, but the, Alex. But the reason, reason why I say that is, you may have a real, legitimate reason to test against some production mm-hmm. data.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But, and what I, the big example there is how do you test your upgrade until you deploy it against your production data? Yep. So if you can copy from production to pre-production but treat it exactly the same, yep. when you go through your release cycle, you'd be testing against production data
0: without risking production data. That makes sense. And and by virtue of the use of uh, the one that we said was, was the one that we weren't really concentrating on today around elasticity, but the ability to then spin up those pre-production environments, test against our production data, but then destroy them again once you're done. Is a massive advantage in those kinds yeah, of scenarios. Absolutely. So, cost, speed, time to revenue, significantly improved. Indeed. So, there's there's one thing I actually you mentioned cost there. And this is one, <laughs> this is one that always comes up because um, you know we move to cloud. Cloud's cheaper, isn't it? That's the, always always cheaper. <laughs> um, but one of the challenges that I've seen with some of my customers is that once you start to give the power of the infrastructure to the development teams. Um, and with great power comes great responsibility and the other Spider-Man <laughs> references and um- so how do we make sure that we don't then spiral costs out of control by giving access to those environments and, and allowing developers to spin up lots of additional infrastructure?
2: Yeah, my personal way of doing it was to use the individual developer's credit card. Because <laughs> so, um, that, that puts an awful lot of... Uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, put a bit of bonus on them. I've, I've seen... Um, actually, it's, it's, not, um, it's not an uncommon thing, I think. But I've seen it with at least two customers I've gone in to visit. Um, and they have gamified the yeah. whole uh, concept around cloud spend. So if they've got multiple teams of developers working on different features and they were running different development environments, um, they actually have war boards on the screen in the office, yeah. um, showing what the spend is per team. And at the end of the week, if each team, you know, whichever team is able to keep their cost the lowest, either gets a bonus, or whoever is the one who spent the most gets a, yeah. you know, like a, yeah. you know, taking the mickey out of and a bit of beratement. Um, so the, the, it's quite an interesting one that I've, uh, and I, I think it is, it's worthwhile having a little Google online for some of those kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I love the name though, the gamification. Yeah, yeah,
2: and it's an interesting from like an MI point of view to be able to go. This feature costs us this much in infrastructure to develop, mm. and you re- you can record and track that against those features. Yeah, and especially not- if you're working in sprints for
0: you know yeah, two weeks exactly. at a time. It's very easy. Then, exactly,
2: yeah. and there are th- other. You know, you can do gamification and I think having the data on a big screen brings it to the front of mind for people. Mm-hmm. But doing things like um a daily subscription limit mm-hmm. starts to help control it. Um and then if or certain teams only have certain amount of money they can spend. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if they can improve the performance of certain applications in certain areas, they'll spend less money, which gives them more money to spend on other things. Yep. Um I've worked with teams that have had a budget. Right. And if they come under the budget, that's a cash bonus they go over the budget then that's a management conversation (laughs) get your credit card
0: out interesting (laughs) I mean that that actually you know there's an infrastructure angle to that as well which is that um, one of the best practices that we should always be utilizing when we go into cloud is the use of tagging Mm -hmm. and actually by tagging uh, the development teams who are generating the environments not only does it allow you to start to align that with billing and understand where your spend is going but also allows you for example if there was a breach or if there was some kind of an issue then it allows you to immediately go and talk to the team and get mm-hmm. better understanding straight away of who's utilizing those resources less of an issue for smaller organizations but once you start walking into you know developer organizations with hundreds or even thousands of developers then it's really critical to a business to actually understand Absolutely. who's using the resources yeah. and if if they even need to be because yeah. you know turn it on and leave it on is 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 often the the old school it way and in cloud it's all too easy to do that mm-hmm. and then the development team leaves or goes on to another project and all of a sudden you're burning cash on something you don't ever need.
2: And that's something to to bring it back to the security point is if you can tag accurately within the development and you can understand what microservice does what, Mm -hmm. if it goes into production and you get a spike in revenue against a certain tag, which you can often track daily, you can either figure out, is that a security breach? Is that an application problem? Or is Mm -hmm. it a a bug or Mm, whatever else? And it gives you the ability
0: to track it down incredibly quickly, which
1: gives you a lot of granular control. Yeah.
0: Well, that's been a, that's been awesome, Paul. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us today and sharing sharing some of those development insights.
1: Absolutely, we won't forget Hudson for a while. No, I <laughs>
0: won't. No, for sure. Um, so w- w- this is just part one of uh, of, a, of several episodes we're going to do over the course of this year, which are going to be kind of focused on the development side of infrastructure. Um, we have, for example, later in the year, we're going to be doing an episode on CI/CD pipelines and automation, something we've been talking about quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, with uh, one of our DevOps gurus from within, uh, within Rackspace. Um, and, and I forgot what the third one was going to be, but we're, we'll definitely provide more information Absolutely. about that coming Absolutely. up in the series. Um, so if you've enjoyed the show, um, please do give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Um, you can capture our contact details in the show notes. And if you want to get in touch with us with anything, any questions, comments, a um, bit of feedback, that'd be brilliant. Um, and otherwise, uh, we will see you on the next episode.
1: Absolutely. And just while we're on the dev series, just a quick uh, reminder, if you need more information on, on these automation and uh, DevOps as a service, uh, I'd say I strongly recommend check out our webinar with Iskander. It, it goes, It gives you a really good introduction into it.
0: Absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes too. Let's do that. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you. you Bye-bye.